This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. If you log on to the Federal Election Commission's website or go to opensecrets.org, you can find these lists. Lists of who's donating to Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren, how much they're giving. It is an incredibly simple thing to do. And I think I would also add it's like a treasure trove for journalists, right? Dahlia Lithwick covers Washington for Slate. She loves doing this kind of digging. If a donor's given more than 200 bucks, they're on these sites. Like these donor lists are like super, super interesting. I, I think at some point... um. I might have looked up like house renters, uh, you know, just to like find out what was going on. So people who are renting your house, uh, I, possibly. Um, I think at some point, some people do a credit check. Dolly yeah, Lithwick no, does an FEC just check. Wanted to know. But in the last few weeks, there's been this debate simmering about how donors get counted, who compiles these lists, who tweets these names out. Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas tweeted out a graphic this week that shows the names and employers of 44 Trump campaign donors in San Antonio. The people who contributed. It started when Congressman Joaquin Castro publicized the names of high-end Trump donors in San Antonio. At the time, New York Times White House correspondent Maggie Haberman called that dangerous. Trump himself settled for calling Castro a fool. So do you want people to boycott their companies, protest outside their homes? What's the goal here? No, that, in, that was never my goal. Uh, like I said, my post was actually as a San Antonian. My family has been here since 1922. Mm-hmm. It was a lament. And then, last week... Co-stars of Will and Grace taking on Trump supporters, Deborah Messing... Actress Deborah Messing asked The Hollywood Reporter to print a list of donors attending a Trump fundraiser in Beverly Hills. This went through the whole spin cycle, online, on TV. They say that the public has a right to know. Is that true? Well... (laughs) By the time Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar were talking about it on The View... You could hear the audience trying to figure out how they felt about this idea. The idea of calling out campaign supporters one by one. When Whoopi first brings up the idea of this list, there are a couple of isolated claps. Like, yeah, disclosure, that makes sense. Then the conversation turns. But I happen to be against that kind of thing. Whoopi ends up bringing down the house with a plea for privacy. Do not encourage people to print out lists because the next list that comes out, your name will be on and then people will be coming after you. No one. You sh- we, nobody. We had something called the blacklist and a lot of really good people were accused of stuff. Dahlia was watching all these conversations play out and she knew exactly how she felt. If people are going to donate, the core democratic principle behind that is stand behind your donation. Whoopi's big applause line, Dahlia disagreed with it completely. And the most interesting thing for me is 
if you weren't doing something shameful, you couldn't be shamed. Today on the show, Dolly and I are going to pick apart this argument you've been hearing about whether political donors should be outed online. She says before you make up your mind about who should tweet what, you need to understand how we got here and why Dahlia thinks identifying donors like this is a fundamental American right. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The list of people who have donated to Donald Trump's campaign effort is long. People who describe themselves as homemakers or retired, lawyers. You can go download the list right now. Identifying donors and the campaigns and political organizations they give to, it's always been a matter of public interest. But Dahlia says, over the last decade, the Citizens United decision at the Supreme Court has raised the stakes for this kind of disclosure. That's because that ruling took the brakes off of political spending. That gave big donors the green light to open up their pocketbooks. The thing is, the Supreme Court intended to put a check on all this spending. Like, if money is speech, right. and you want to defend money is speech, and the only thing that saves Citizens United is Kennedy saying, disclosure, full disclosure, full information, money is speech, but then everybody has equal access, then it's over. Originally, everyone agreed on this. Republicans, Democrats. But pretty soon after Citizens United was resolved, Republicans like Mitch McConnell started speaking out saying things like disclosure was sure to lead to harassment. But the purpose of trying to get disclosure to outside groups is to bring the power of the government down on them and to intimidate them out of the process. But if, if it did apply to everybody, what would be wrong with disclosure? You know, provided the government wasn't going to harass you, it'd be okay. But we've just seen, as I mentioned to you earlier in this interview, we now have an administration that if they can get their hands on the names will go after the donors and try to frighten them into not participating. You know, I had an interesting case. Mitch McConnell was always the person who said, we're going to reform, you know, campaign finance, but we're going to have disclosure. Disclosure is going to be the, the cure-all. And then suddenly, oh, I don't like disclosure when people get harassed. I was a little surprised when I started digging into it, just how long we've been talking about this, really. There's this case from 10 years ago that I remembered once I found it that really puts the debate we're having at this moment in perspective. I'm wondering if you can talk about these anti-gay marriage donors who were outed back in 2008. This happened around Prop 8, and it was donors who were giving to the anti-gay marriage side of California's effort to determine whether or not they were going to allow same-sex marriage. And 
I think the issue surfaces all over the country at around the same time. It's almost like a early iteration of what we're now seeing with the cake bakers, right, and the and the people who are objecting. Except the difference is, folks were wanting to contribute to those campaigns and they wanted to be anonymous. Now, some of the claims that they were making, and the one you're thinking of, was actually litigated in California because they were saying, "No, I need my name not to be disclosed because I am personally being subject to leafleting and harassment. People are coming to my home." Home. And so they were making this argument that, look, I'm taking an unpopular position. That's not the issue. The issue is I don't want people to come and harass me at home. And we should say, like, what happened was gay rights groups published a map, a Google map or a MapQuest, where you could literally look at San Francisco and you could see little red dots. And each of those dots was a donor who had contributed to bringing down gay marriage. And they put it out there to say, listen, know who these people are and do what you will with it. I don't think there was anything in there saying what you should do with the information, but it was just sort of outing people as these are the people who are contributing to this campaign. Yeah. And the the folks, I, I mean, there were definite business implications. There were boycotts. There were people who felt that their businesses suffered and their reputational interests suffered. And they tried to get out from under California's public disclosure laws by saying, like, we are going to suffer irreparable injury was the constitutional standard. And and they didn't generally prevail in courts. Again, I think because the courts tended to say, look, the idea that you're inchoate fear of some bad consequence, uh, that's not irreparable injury. And, you know, probably the most interesting case from exactly the same time uh, is a, a parallel case that comes to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's called Dovey Reed in 2010. And this is this Washington state ballot initiative, again, around the issue of gay marriage. And the people who oppose same-sex marriage uh, make the claim that they just don't want their names out there for all the same reasons, you know, boycotts, harassment, whatever. The Supreme Court, eight to one, says, no way, no way. You don't get to get out from under, you know, public disclosure laws just because you don't want to be ashamed or embarrassed. We're not going to just let you be hiding in a closet. Closet's probably not the right (laughs) word. You know, hiding in your basement and... Uh, contributing time and energy to politics and not be on the hook for it. And I just want to read you because Justice Scalia, we think of as this like great Arch you know, conservative. conservative, he ends up writing a concurrence that people are now uh, repurposing again in all of these Deborah Messing Gate and, and the Castro Gate. And I think that what he says is still so forceful and important today. He says, quote, there are laws against threats and intimidation and harsh criticism short of unlawful action is the price our people have traditionally been willing to pay for self-governance. Requiring people to stand up in public for their political acts fosters civic courage without which democracy is doomed. For my part, I do not look forward to a society which, thanks to the Supreme Court, campaigns anonymously and even exercises the direct democracy of initiative and referendum hidden from public scrutiny and protected from the accountability of criticism. This does not resemble, he concludes, the home of the brave. (laughs) You can hear God bless America in the background when you (laughs) read that. You know, he's really making the case that transparency and opening the spigot of money go hand in hand, because once you're making money 
into speech, you need to know where that money's coming from. And in fairness, this is not a money case. This is a case about ballot initiatives, but it is about, I think, transparency and bravery or what he calls civic courage. That if you are going to participate in government at any level, again, whether it's, you know, your point, money and speech, or whether it is a ballot initiative or a referendum, have the courage to stand up and do it. I think that Justice Scalia really was a lonely voice among the court's conservatives for this idea of civic courage that you, you know, stand up and you own who you are. And more and more, we've seen that eroded by Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, by this creeping sense that the pillaging hordes with the pitchforks are coming to get us all and that, you know, particularly um, Justice Alito is incredibly nervous about people on the Internet with one click can find your name and another click they can find your home address and they can figure out where your kids go to school. And that burgeoning anxiety, which, by the way, I think, you know, with Scalia gone and with Kennedy gone, like those open disclosure voices are being replaced by Justices uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. I think that this idea that technology changes everything and that civic courage cannot exist at a time when people can just, you know, come to your house and punch you in the mouth. I think that's a technology problem that the court is folding into this First Amendment problem you and I are talking about. What Dahlia is trying to say here is, yeah, with the laws as they are now, money's speech. And therefore, it's good to be transparent about who's spending that money. But then there's also the Internet and Twitter. And you know what? It is pretty easy to talk about disclosing donors until a target is drawn over your house on a Google map. But these are also two very different arguments. One is about whether we have a right to have certain information, know who's donating to whom. The other is about political discourse, why we can't be nicer to each other. And the courts and the Constitution don't really show us how to find our way out of that conflict. There is nothing wrong or paranoid or demented about being afraid of being in a technological moment when your whole life could just be cracked open for public consumption and your total value as a human being is, you know, nuggeted down to like the one worst or most embarrassing thing you ever did. Uh, There was a really interesting uh, uh, Twitter thread after the the Castro disclosure, uh, an ACLU attorney, Joshua Block, tried to say there's a difference between disclosing this information because you want to embarrass Trump. Right. You want to say, look at all the money that he took from the NRA. Look at all the money he took from, you know, uh, anti-gay rights groups. And disclosing information because you want to shame the donors. Hmm. And his point, it's incredibly nuanced, but I think there's some truth there, is is there utility in shaming the donors as opposed to shaming, you know, if you want to shame Mitch McConnell for being in the pocket of the Russians or being in the pocket of the NRA, that's a useful enterprise. But is it worth shaming, you know, $2,800 donors? And I think That might be a place where reasonable people can differ. I want to talk about the fear because I feel like the point of someone like Maggie Haberman, who, you know, called out Joaquin Castro for tweeting this list, or someone like Whoopi Goldberg, who set herself up as sort of in opposition to Deborah Messing. The point is that once you start, you know, taking out your weapons 
then we're all just, you know, we're all blind. You know, eye for an eye leaves us all blind, basically. That's the feeling that publishing a list like this means now the other side has a list and it means we're all kind of girding ourselves for battle. Whoopi Goldberg in particular compared what's happening now to the blacklist from the 40s and 50s. And you really take issues with that. And I wonder if you could spell out why. I mean, I think that you can't say that all lists are the same and all outing and all disclosure are the same. And, you know, the, the, the blacklist fights, particularly those that, you know, targeted Hollywood writers and producers and directors, was the engine of the government, <laughs> the engine of the government often pretextually also by pitting one person against each other, smoking out suspected communists. It's just not the same as publicly available information that is at Open Secrets, that is at the the FEC. Uh, you know, you can just go find it. And the act of aggregating known information and putting it out there is just not the same as sitting someone down in front of a Senate committee and asking them to name all the communists that they know. And then the government using that uh, to construct a story about the, you know, your life. I know they both feel like acts of shaming and shunning, but one was a way for the government to literally drive people out of business. The other is I don't want people to know that I'm benefiting from Trump's business policies, but that I'm really, really, really like deeply embarrassed about what he's doing at the border. And I don't want people to know that. Do do you think 20 years ago, journalists and someone like Whoopi Goldberg would be more comfortable with this kind of absolutist approach because the Internet wasn't quite a thing and because the people who had this information weren't the same. They would be the gatekeepers to getting this information. It would be filtered through their filter, and it wouldn't be just a random person, you know, searching an FEC filing, creating a GIF, and publishing it on Twitter. There's no doubt in my mind, and that's why I keep saying this is a technology problem. This is not a First Amendment speech problem. This is a problem of we live in a time where we are all vulnerable to mob justice based on the stupidest thing we tweet or say or write or based on the dumbest campaign contribution we make. And we don't have a way to protect ourselves against that. None of us do. Not Maggie Haberman, not Castro, not you, not me. Uh, We are in a, a media moment in which we are unbelievably vulnerable to mob justice. And that's terrifying to everybody. The question for me is, given that that is true and that we do not seem to have the wherewithal to regulate that or to control it or slow it down, do we just throw up our hands and say, therefore, no disclosure, no transparency, no no uh, open government? Or do we say, let's stand by these basic tenets of what is necessary in order to have a free and open government, which is disclosure of campaign donors, even if it means that people are going to get whacked. And again, I, I don't I shouldn't say whacked because I don't mean that they're going to suffer physical harms. And I would just cite back to Justice Scalia saying in Dovey Reed, you can create laws that bolster your ability to be safe from harassment, to be safe from intimidation, 
to be safe from the kinds of reprisals that really are consequential and material. If you want to bolster those things, let's talk about that. But the idea that we're going to do away with openness and with disclosure because we're all running around in this fog of war, in this deep, inchoate, visceral fear that we're going to be shamed and outed for our secrets. That's not – it just strikes me that the cure for this fear isn't more secrecy. <laughs> but I think the fear is that publishing a list, you don't get get to control who has it. And so – the equivalency would maybe be between anti-abortion groups publishing a list of doctors and their addresses who perform abortions. And in the same way, those physicians should be proud of the work they do. And, you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't want to hide from what they do. And how is this different from that? And in those cases that those Nuremberg file cases, right? Those are those are cases that come at the very advent of the internet and they're publishing uh, the names of abortion doctors and they're literally putting like their, you know, here's his license plate, here's his home address. And then they strike through the ones, the names of the ones who are killed. Dahlia is talking about a website called the Nuremberg Files. It printed wanted posters of abortion doctors. Eventually, Planned Parenthood took the man who created it to court. And uh, that case never makes it to the Supreme Court, but certainly in the appeals courts, uh, there's a real feeling that that is inching up on incitement. That is actually saying to people, like, go out and kill abortion doctors. Um, here's a map to their home. And again, for me, I think that it all of these incitement questions and I don't I actually don't believe these donor lists, you know, are, are anywhere near the bucket of incitement. Um, but I think all of those incitement questions really are harder with modern technology. Right. It's just different. Even if all of this is public information, the act of aggregating it and putting it out there and saying like there now go to their coffee shops and, you know, stand there with signs is really, really different um, in, in the area era of the internet. And it is absolutely the case. I mean, it's interesting, Mary, one of the lawsuits that was piled, filed post-Charlottesville uh, was uh, Robbie Kaplan, who who um, argued the Edie Windsor case. And she's making some of the arguments that you're making, which is it is all protected free speech. Come and, and rally and support Nazis. But you don't get to go on the Internet and plan car rammings and, you know, talk about which weapons you're bringing. That is incitement, the same way the Nuremberg Files cases were incitement. And these are such hard First Amendment cases. They are so hard because I think the defense is exactly what you're saying, which is I'm just just listing some abortion doctors. I'm just aggregating some publicly available information about what I might wear to a Nazi rally to protect myself. Like that's not incitement. And these cases, it's almost as though and this is just such a problem for the First Amendment, even separating the campaign finance Citizens United disclosure stuff. The First Amendment, all of our case law is from the 1920s and 30s, right? Like it's just doesn't map onto the way we live now. It sounds like what you're saying is the system is completely unable to deal with these questions. And maybe it's the wrong system to deal with it, the legal system. I, I do think there's a real voice at the court, at the Supreme Court. And by the way, you know, I keep name checking Justice Alito and and 
uh, Clarence Thomas, but I think uh, Justice Stephen Breyer has also said, you know, there's no such thing as yelling fire in a crowded theater anymore. The whole world is the crowded theater, he says now, you know, and, and, and an action that you take here can have implications across the world. It is insane to use models of, you know, what are fighting words, what are what is incitement, what are these exceptions to First Amendment protections uh, in a world where we're all hooked up to each other. And so it's not a left-right problem. And I think the anxiety that you've identified, even in that audience at The View, is the anxiety of technology has moved far faster than any of the models that we've created based on, you know, First Amendment notions about having a town square, you know, and a guy with a with a bell yelling stuff at us. I mean, it's just not working. Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts and Washington for Slate. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Danielle Hewitt. I am Mary Harris, and I will talk to you on Monday. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.